0: Hey there, welcome to Board Game Hot Takes, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. My name is Tim. And this is Chris. This is Adam. And today we're going to give our hot take review on the game we just finished playing, A Feast for Odin. But before we jump into that, we have some poll results to discuss, as always. This week on social media, I asked a poll related to board games. And if you'd like to be involved in these polls, you can follow us on Twitter at BG underscore or find our Facebook group, Board Game Hot Takes. I said, if your local game store doesn't have a game you want, do you special order with them or just order online instead? And I asked this question because my local game store is kind of a game pub. That's where I go to play games sometimes. And they have a little bit of a retail store. Them, but they don't have a whole lot of selection. So if there's something I really want and it's in there, I'll usually try to pick something up to support them. But... I haven't special ordered anything and they almost never have something I want. So I just haven't done that. So I was kind of curious how other people thought about that. If you're trying to support your local game store, Uh, the options I gave were special order and social media answered 21.6% here order online at 67.6%. And I never shop local stores at
1: 10.8%. How did you guys answer this for this one? I put, I'll just order it online, I think. So usually I go to a local game store, just to browse around and see if something catches my eye, if there's something novel, or if there's something on my like out of print list, my grail list, maybe they ha- happen to have it in their used bin or stashed away on one of their shelves. I remember I went to a board game store in in San Francisco. I was up there a few years ago. I went to a nice little board game store up there, and they had a copy of Quantum. It's been long out of print and it's like impossible to find. And I had it in my hand. I was like, I should probably buy this for 55 bucks because I don't think you can get it anywhere else anymore. And I was like, no, nah, I don't want to do it. So I just put it back in and now you can't find the game for less than I don't know, 150, 200 bucks or something like that. So it's not even worth the 55 bucks you could have <laughs> paid for it. So you skipped a bit bullet on that one. That's funny. But yeah, I'm not going to special order from them. I'm just going to go online if they don't have it there, if they don't have what I'm looking for there. And uh, I just go to visit to see what they have and to smell the board games and to (laughs) smell the BO of the other patrons in the store
2: more often than not. And then I'm out of there and I'll go to Amazon or whatever to to get what I really want. This was a hard one. I mean, I want to be a responsible consumer. I want to buy local. I want to go to my small local store. And that's usually the first thing that I do is go and look and see what they've got. And fortunately, all of my local stores, you can look online to see what's in their stock. But the reality is that if I can't find it there, I'm probably not going to go special order it. I'm probably just going to order it online because, I mean, as much as I try to be a responsible consumer, I am also a modern consumer. And I just cannot wait too long, as in more than a few hours, to get whatever the hot new game is. So I hate to say it. It's a little embarrassing. So I'm glad that Adam went first and said it but yeah, that's me too. Well, and I, I kind of mentioned this, but the reality is for me that I just,
0: I don't buy a lot of games. I don't rush out to get every game. I tend to pick up games when I just see them at a good deal. And I'm like, man, I've been wanting to try that game. So I guess I'll try it now. It's it's a, at a good price. And the local game stores by me are not ever at a good price. You're going to pay MSRP minimum. That's great. Like if I'm there and they've got a game I'm really dying to play, then I'll pick one up. But It's hard for me to justify going out and paying full price for a game when you know in two months it's going to be in a discount bin on Game Nerds or, you know, 30% off on Amazon or something like that. So, yeah, I... um, Tim, you're always trying to optimize your board game shopping. I like (laughs) Exactly. I don't know. It just makes me feel better when I know I'm going to get rid of that game in two months anyway. So, you know, buy it cheap and then sell it cheap. So here's how some people answered on our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Seth Gonzalez said, my closest gaming store is managed by someone who completely caters to their card collector playing clientele exclusively and their attitude towards other tabletop players who browse the shelves or have questions can just go kick rocks. Screw that guy. I'm buying online instead. And no, Seth Seth raised a good point here, right? A lot of people are like, yeah, you got to support your friendly local game store. But I've been in a lot of game stores, especially the ones that are focused around like, you know, collectible card games. And most of them are not very friendly, to, to be honest. I mean, I, it's just straight up. That's the reality. Like most game stores I've been in, the the people who are working there, the people who are running it are not very friendly. So unless I'm going there and using their space regularly, I don't have any, I don't feel any obligation to supporting them. But there's a couple that I've been into where the 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 owners are really, you know, super friendly, super helpful. So those ones, obviously you've got one of those by you, then that's a good reason to support them. But I think that's unfortunately pretty common. Uh, with what Seth experienced.
2: Hey, Tim, do you mean like not friendly to board gamers or just not friendly like they're not friendly people?
0: Yeah, I think both. Um, I mean, I've been in even when I was, you know, again, I, a lot of my experience in game stores is back in my Magic the Gathering days. And a lot of the times the people that are running them are they're like, you know, guys that are Magic the Gathering players and they start up the store and they don't necessarily have the best social skills or the best, you know, uh deodorant skills or many other skills and they'll ignore you because their couple of friends are in the store and they're talking to them i i think there's enough non-friendly local game stores that are making their living off of selling ma- uh, magic crack to kids and they don't have to be too friendly to make a living but uh, again i think there are some really good ones so i don't want to disparage every small retail owner obviously there are some that are that are you know in, that are great people that are running these stores David Mann said, my local game store is much more expensive than on time, online retailers, so I only buy smaller games there. But since it's also a cafe and I'm there 15 to 20 hours per week, I support them with all my food purchases. And that's how I feel. Like the store that I usually go to, the Silver Key Lounge, uh, which is a little bit of a drive for me too, so I wouldn't go just to go shop for games. But when I'm there to game, I'm usually spending 18, 25 bucks on on just you know, beer as well. I'm there having... Uh, playing games so i feel like they do get my support even you know since i'm using this store even if i'm not buying their games ray meyer said i love to support my local stores but if i have to order it it doesn't make any sense for me to do that really i'm going to pay full retail to wait longer and have to come back to get it i support stores by paying retail with the caveat that i'm walking out of there with the game no waiting longer and having to travel back and then chris moyer said my flgs overcharges quite a bit 50 to 60 percent over online canadian sites so we don't usually shop there." And on two occasions, when we have ordered through them, they have sold the items before we could arrive to pick them up on the day they came in. Okay, not very friendly if you ask me, but we will shop at game stores in other towns and cities if they are fairly priced. One in a nearby city gets a good amount of our yearly purchases. So yeah, okay, interesting. I was I was kind of feeling a little guilty that I wasn't just pre-ordering or special ordering games from my local store if they didn't have it in, but it sounds like that's pretty consistent. Most people are kind of falling back on uh, ordering online if, if you can't get your purchases
1: there. All right, well, let's jump into a description of a Feast for Odin. A Feast for Odin involves all things, in quotes, Viking, around the year 1000. Use the Vikings from your specific Viking clan in the most optimal way and win the game. Played over six or seven rounds, players accumulate Vikings, which are then placed in groups of one to four, onto the gargantuan action board which allow players to do things like explore new islands, raise, and of course breed animals, go whaling, hunt, set snares, trade goods, collect resources, build boats, pillage, raid, and learn new occupations via card play. Once all players have exhausted their supply of Vikings, the round ends. Eligible resources are placed on your territory to gain points and income, and a feast is held where, again, more resources are played on your clan's Viking table. Failure to provide adequate food for your clan results in a harsh point penalty. At the end of the game, the Viking clan with the most points is declared victorious. This is a very Notes version of the rules, but that's the general gist, and hopefully that gives you enough to follow along with our conversation that follows. A Feast for Odin was designed by Yui Rosenberg, originally released in 2016, currently sits at number 22 on Board Game Geek, and features art by Dennis Lohausen. All right, welcome back. So let's talk about the gameplay and mechanisms of A Feast for Odin.
0: Now, this is one of those games that we've actually played quite a bit. Um, I I own this, this game. I've probably played it a half dozen times in person. Uh, i played it quite a bit on Board Game Arena. I know Chris has as well, and, and Adam's had a few play of it plays of it as well. So we've all had some experience with this coming in. This is not a first time play for any of us. So gameplay and mechanisms,
1: let's kick it off. What clicked for me this time more than any of the other times was the card play, the occupations and using those cards effectively or semi-effectively to combo and up and get some upgrades and some little bonuses here and there when you, you know, you wouldn't get those little bonuses without playing those cards. So that clicked for me a little more this game. I want to highlight that. I think I had the one where if you were successful with a snare, then you get to do some extra stuff. And then I had this an oil trader, so a barrel of oil, you could change that a blue thing that was like bigger. And then I had one where if you went whaling, you got two oils. So I got the two oils from whaling. and then if I went to it was upgrade a single thing, then I got you to change my oil into a big blue thing or a bigger blue thing. That probably doesn't make any sense to anybody. <laughs> but the, the point is these cards, <laughs> these two cards, Worked in combination in concert with each other to help me out and get a slight little advantage, and got me the third place out of fourth place finish tonight. <laughs> so that was fun putting that little combo together, having that those cards at least click for me a little more. Congratulations,
0: and Chris deserved that loss after how hard he worked with all those cards.
2: <laughs> yeah, I uh, I snatched defeat from the jaws of victory with this one. I thought I had the perfect game going, but actually. I have played this game a bunch of times, but I still do remember what it felt like the first time or two that I played it. So I feel like I can still conjure up those memories. And what Adam said really resonated because one thing that I did not get those first couple times that I played was the whole thing about the occupation cards. And that is really a Feast for Odin 201, you know, in the first time you play the company, the second time you play You're really focused on those big, sexy pieces that you're putting out on the board, the little polyominoes that you're trying to use to cover the spaces. But the real story of this game is you got to play those those occupation cards, because always there's going to be a little benefit to that card, especially if you have an ongoing benefit one. And if you can play one of those the first round and then keep getting the little extra tweak from that for the rest of the game, and that's going to make all the difference in the world and. It takes a couple of games to learn how to do that. So I remember the first time going, I have no idea what I'm doing. Whoever I was playing, was probably Tim, is trouncing me. I'm embarrassed. I want to crawl under a rock. But at the same time, I also thought it was fun putting all those little pieces down on the board and stuck with it. And I'm glad I did, because now I can at least see how some of that card play works. And it's actually really fun. Yeah, the cards, the occupation cards are a mixed bag for me because
0: I think that's where really on, the only variability comes in the game, right? Otherwise, all the action spaces are available to you and you could just pursue the same strategy every game with the little caveat that other players could get in and block you. You know, they could take the spaces before you do. But the uh, the occupation cards give you a little bit of goals, something to drive a strategy a little bit. and And I like that. So that's a good thing. But they feel so slight. You know, you get some benefits from them. And it's good to play around them because the only way you can really get ahead is get those little benefits. But I just feel like they're so hard to get played and to to achieve. And then you get some little minor benefits. And half the time I end up playing a lot of them later in the game just to get the points that are listed on them and don't get a lot of benefits out of them. And so it's almost a little disappointing for me because if I compare this to like Agricola, Uwe Rosenberg's other, you know, one of his other worker placement games, get a lot of them but I love the occupation cards and the, and, you know, the minor um, improvement cards in that game where they feel much more impactful. They're much easier to get out and played. And th- that's where the fun for the game is. And I wish that you could get some of these, game, these, these cards just out and active and, and more impactful and effective. So it really felt like you had some variety in the gameplay more than they give you in this. So I like them. It's one of my favorite parts of the game, but I think that kind of shows a little bit where... This game just doesn't give me quite enough variety uh,
1: even with those occupation cards. What those occupation cards gave me too was a place to focus in this game. Before when I play, I'm just like, I don't know, am I going to go sail over to Greenland or Baffin Island or wherever and grab these other things and just get big blue pieces and try to fill up my board? I don't know what to do here. Am I going to try to breed some animals because it's a Rosenberg game? There's just so many different directions you can go in this game, so... For here, I wanted to try to exploit those occupation cards and go down that path. So it gave me something to focus towards, which I appreciate. I like a little focus in my games. And that's where this game has always been like a little head scratching for me was the 187 choices that you can pick on this worker selection mat. So, yeah, that's always a little perplexing to me. And that's uh, maybe a little bit of a negative for me. It's just the unfocusedness. I
2: guess it's almost some, some people call it like a sandboxy kind of a game because there's so much you can do. Yeah, I mean, that is a huge thing. If you like sandboxy games, if you like having a lot of options, there's an excellent chance that you're going to find this game, I think, fairly appealing. But if that doesn't sound exciting to you, then this game is probably going to be a big bust, because that really, that's the story of it. And Tim, I think alluded to this or said this outright as well, is that it is the same thing every game over and over and over again, other than those occupation cards, which is actually a big complaint that I have about another game that we've been playing a lot recently, and I know is for both of you, one of your favorites, uh, Beyond the Sun. Although in Beyond the Sun, you've got like four choices. And in this game, you've got like a million. So I- I'm surprised to hear you, uh, hear you acting so skeptical about the sandboxiness of this one. I feel like we're about to turn this into a Beyond the Sun
0: episode because I can't believe you just said that that <laughs> right. game doesn't have variety. <laughs> there is so much variety in that game comparatively because every one of the tech cards comes up different. Different tech cards come up. Different planets come up. So much variety. Uh, I I get that the opening on that is a little scripted, but definitely not as scripted as this game is now. So let, let me talk about that a little bit because there is 62 worker placement spaces. feels like you should have a lot of options. And you do... But it does feel to me as a semi-amateur, again, I've probably played 15 times on this game, that there's a couple specific paths you should try to go down. If if everybody else doesn't get in your way, that's going to make you more effective and more successful. And you can pretty much ignore several of the other paths. Maybe I'm way wrong about that. And that wouldn't be the first time that I just don't grasp like advanced strategy in my first 10 to 15 plays. But I feel like if, if without the occupations and without... The full player count of four players where people are really blocking you a little bit heavier i feel like i know exactly what i'm going to do my game's pretty much scripted and i think that's what's led this game to not be more exciting to me like i like the puzzle of the game but it just feels like i kind of want to go down the same path every time and when i explore other paths sometimes it's effective but most of the time i just feel like i'm flailing and and not doing as well and so you know like tonight i did that tonight i decided to just kind of go down a different path. And I had one of my, you know, worst games that I've had of it for a long time. So I should have just gone and did the exact same actions I did. But why am I going back and playing the game and doing the same things over and over again? So, yeah, I don't know. This this game has always been a struggle for me because I like what all of the options. I like what it's trying to put together. But the, the fact that there is so little variability makes it feel samey to me and a little hard for me to get really excited about.
1: Well, now I need to know what's the
0: path that you usually go down to. <laughs> Well, for me it's always get get wood, get the whaling boat, start whaling. That's the first that's the first part. And of course there's many points from there then you want to get the the middle boat and start upgrading your green tiles cuz the whaling gets you a lot of green tiles, start upgrading those green tiles into blue tiles. You know, it's some combination and obviously there's a, there's a variety, there's different places places you can go, you know. But but my point is that I like I completely ignore the animals, the the breeding Uh, animal thing maybe that's a great strategy i've never seen it pay off for anybody i completely ignore like the little food huts again could be a totally good strategy i'm not trying to talk strategy here i'm just saying for me i think when a game doesn't give you you know just a variety of choices it makes it hard for me to to not settle into a path whether it's a good strategy or not and so i'm uh you know that that's that's a letdown for me okay
1: so some of the other mechanisms we're alluding to here is yeah there's these boards and they all have a variety of little icons on them if you surround these little icons with the polyominoes then you get that little thing you try to cover up the silver coin so you can get that much income at the beginning of the next round so you're using all these pieces to cover up your board to erase negative points to get you into the positive and score points and that puzzle that's again that's not a super exciting puzzle for me you get the pieces fill them in and that's for some reason patchwork does it for me i like the way it's presented there another ua rosenberg game where you, know, you only have a choice of the three tiles in front of you and you have to have enough money, enough buttons to buy those. For some reason, that is just that little simple mechanism. And I heard that game spawned from Rosenberg's development of this game. I don't know if that's true or not. But I like the simplicity and the cleanliness where the uh, polyomino filling in the board is done there versus how it's done here. Again, it feels like it's kind of all over the place. Put it wherever you want. And then you can go back and fill in with these little coins and this and that and uh, find a way to fill in the gaps after this willy-nilly
2: polyomino puzzling going on on these little islands. I love the polyominoes in this game, and I don't know why. <laughs> There's nothing about them that seem like they should be that appealing, but I just love putting the polyominoes down in this one. In fact, one of the things that I think is probably the most rewarding, exciting part of this game I did it a lot tonight in the game that we played, is getting those islands with the weird shapes on them and then getting those, uh, I don't want the artifacts to these things you get on the oval board where they're, you know, oddly shaped ones that you can fit into a very specific kind of spot. It's getting the islands, having these weird spots to fill and then finding just the right random artifact to fill those spaces and I just get such a kick out of that. I think it is so much fun. I again, I I can't explain why it's so much fun. I just think it's super awesome. Yeah, great things, both of them.
0: <laughs> I don't know why I, I'm having such a hard you're, time. You're getting convinced, enthusiastic tonight because that's what this game has done for me. Like since I started playing it, like I, I, it seemed like a great game, and I, I like the you know, the rule set, I like what's going on here, but I just never gets me enthusiastic. And so I'm sounding really negative. We'll talk about this in our final thoughts a little bit more, but you know, having a a board where you got a polyomino puzzle is a great puzzle. I think it's a little missing more opportunities to play with unique shapes is yeah. probably one of the things that, uh, it just, it's so many rectangles and squares. And uh, yeah. and it just feels like you gotta work so hard to surround some of those tiles that that's a little less fun for me. So Chris, obviously, yeah, those those artifacts do make it more interesting when you can pick those up, but they're, you know, they're a little harder to get to and there's not a ton of them available. There, there's there's other cool mechanisms here, right? Like the, the mountain strips where you can get the different types of resources, depending on where people go to them. That's an interesting resource management or like resource gathering kind of yeah, mechanism kind of. Kind, of. <laughs> kind of it's kind of interesting <laughs> you know there's a whole bunch of mechanisms in here that are kind of interesting and they all work together but but they just feel a little bit dry and i think but you know mechanically that's the last thing i'll say about the game is is it, there's almost no player interaction, although there's a lot of player interaction, right? You're blocking spaces and you're taking stuff before other people. But I feel like I never want to, I don't care what you guys are doing on your board. It doesn't matter what you're doing, doesn't matter to what I'm doing. And so it just feels like when we're sitting here playing a four player game, sure, my my turn's decent. It's decently fun, but I could care less what you guys are doing on your turn. And mm-hmm. I just wanted to get back to my turn and those turns can take a while sometimes. So this is one of those like super ultra like multiplayer solitaire games that just isn't fun to play solitaire for me i i I wish there was some other points of interaction in this particular game and i know that's me talking i don't know why i'm saying this but
2: tim i could have sworn that i've heard the these exact words come out of your mouth i love multiplayer solitaire with a puzzle (laughs) to work on my board i don't have to worry about what you're doing and that's your favorite thing in games yeah what is happening (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, and I th- and I do so. I don't know. I don't know why this is. A, I think it's because the puzzle is somehow too. It's just too dry to be really fun for me. Like other games that do multiplayer solitaire, where I feel like the decisions are more tactical, the decisions are more interesting or like exciting. This one just doesn't do it for me as a multiplayer solitaire game. So that's I don't know. That that's kind of how I felt every single time I played it. I still remember Adam the first time I introduced it to you, and it was the first time I would played with other people. I I played it solo a few times before that. And I played it with you and we sat there just in silence kind of, and it was like the first game of an exciting weekend that we were sitting down to play and it was an interesting enough puzzle. And I, you know, I wanted to win the game, but also like, it just felt like such a chill kind of, you know, non, like there was no. Like we weren't playing a game together; we were just kind of sitting across the table from each other doing an activity. Totally,
1: I had all this adrenaline. I just driven like five hours from <laughs> from Long Beach, and I got to your place. I'm like, "What are we gonna do? Let's get feast for own going." Yeah, and I was like, "Hey, nice move. You got some wood and some stone. Over that's cool. I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna roll this dice and see if I can catch a squirrel." <laughs> Oh, I didn't do it. <laughs> Your turn. <laughs> so, yeah, it was really just a very mellow, uh, you know, there wasn't you're supposed to be Vikings, like, going out and exploring these islands, and maybe Viking life is just pretty mellow and not so, like, glorious and bashing stuff and s- slicing, I don't know. Seems like it should be cool, right? High seas and whaling and not this dangerous stuff, but uh, it doesn't necessarily capture that here in Feast for, for me.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, how did Uve how did Uwe Rosenberg manage to put together the one Viking game that has absolutely no violence whatsoever? And how did he manage to how did he manage to make the game that's this incredibly dry euro resource management game that I like and Tim doesn't. It's like the world is turned upside down. <laughs> Cats and dogs are living together. It's like what's no, happening I here? Say,
0: I didn't say. I didn't say like it, Chris. I'm just well, telling okay. you my thoughts on the mechanism. Yeah, I know. So I, we haven't gotten to our final thoughts fair, yet. <laughs> fair enough. I'm, I'm exaggerating a
2: bit there, but your lack of enthusiasm is
0: is apparent. All right. Well, wh- why don't we jump into the and, and listen? There's a lot of other mechanisms we could talk about here, but let's jump into the the theme and production on a feast for Odin.
1: Yeah. So the I'll just start with the production. It's is bureau fair at its finest? Lots of chits, lots of uh orange, and then you flip those to red, or is it red to orange? I can't remember the progression of these things. And then I know the green turned into blue, so you're kind of upgrading these things. And they uh, so it's like a you know one by two chits, and two by two chits, and three by two, and various lengths and widths of grid ch- that you're going to be playing with all game going back and forth, and then. I don't know. Is there anything fun? The resources, I guess the wood looks like little woods. It's your 100% middle of the road, average, nothing spectacular euro production. Uh, But there's a lot of it. There's a lot of it in there. Yeah.
2: I mean, I'm not sure that there's much more I can say about it because everything Adam said is true. I do like the fact the polyominoes are these big chunky tiles that, you know, they're good, big, heavy cardboard, and especially the oddly shaped ones are fun to manipulate and put on your board
0: yeah i i think the production's fine here i mean it's doing a lot of stuff and it's doing it in a euro way it's a pretty high price point i think i remember when i bought it i bought it on sale for like 80 bucks but i think the average price point is like 90 to 100 on this game for what is you know a bunch of cardboard and wood but it's a lot of it it's a big chunky box they do have because there's all these different shits in different colors and sizes It comes with uh, a couple big plastic trays with lids on them, which works nicely. You can organize this stuff, and they pretty well stay in place. So that's nice. Yeah, but beyond that, it feels like a a classic Euro production, and it it does that just fine.
1: And then theme-wise, we touched on it a little bit, but I believe Uwe Rosenberg did a bunch of research, kind of going back and look at the different artifacts and different things throughout Viking history. So that's kind of neat. That he put some actual events kind of into the game, it doesn't really play out that much. Maybe in some of the cards and the occupations, and some of the relics that you can find. I think there's a story that you might have told one time to him or Chris about the the crown, the crown. jewels. Yeah. yeah, the crown. I don't know about that. It seems like the theme. There's at least a lot of effort into it, but does it shine through for me? Again, I'm a we're Vikings on the high seas. I don't really get that feel that I'm a Viking. I'm going out and I'm doing this dangerous expedition to some unknown faraway island and having to survive through these cold seas or chase these gigantic whales down. And there's this risk of, you know, there's really no risk here, risk of failure. Even if you fail, you get your stuff back, you get to try again, and you get some bonuses anyway. I guess it's like you go out and you get experience, and maybe you will do better next time. The risk-reward, there's, it's just very, it's all reward, really, from what I can tell in this game. So the theme, again good effort in some ways by you Rosenberg here on the game and then otherwise a little bit lacking
0: yeah I agree with you Adam I mean he put a lot of research into it and he tried I think he tried to make uh, a world where you're doing the plain old stuff that you know Scandinavians would have done back in I don't know 1400 or whatever the time the time period was here see I didn't even read the rule book recently to give you some actual maybe it's 800 I don't know but um, you know I think that's cool right I mean he think he did the research and try to make a game about being a uh, viking and uh you know there there is some dice rolling so you get those exciting moments but like you said not there a lot you. of risk with them but yeah i mean if you're gonna do a big old euro that is very deterministic um you know i think that at least there's a variety in here and, and they try to tell a story without giving a lot of the just the randomness that you'd you know that you'd have in a, a game that was a little bit more exciting i guess so i don't know i'm, I'm glad that there's a different theme for a euro so i'm okay with that All right. Well, let's ask our final question. And that is, would you request to play it? And I'm going to add a little special hint note on this one today. And that is that we're all getting together in a couple months in person. And I have a Feast for Odin. I have the Norwegians expansion, which is supposed to be the best way to play a Feast for Odin. So we've played it tonight. Do you guys want me to bring it? Do you want to play it if we get together in person? There are
1: so many great games that we're going to be bringing to Sedona this one's gonna to be tough for me to pick this over the I don't know. We're not even realistically what? We're gonna play 20 games. This is not gonna be in my top 20 to pick for Sedona. So there might be a time and a situation where I'd wanna play Feast for Odin, but here at this uh, this con coming up, I am I am not gonna request it.
2: I do like this game. I enjoy playing it. It's not my favorite game, and it's not one that I want to play every day. And all of the criticisms that you guys are making about it, I, I get it. I mean, I don't disagree with any of those, really. I think it really just falls on, you know, h- how those land on you. But in terms of Sedona, I agree with Adam. It's a it's a good game. I like playing it. But honestly, I think the way I like playing it most is the way that we do. It's playing it on BGA where I can take my time, take my turns, think through things It's not the kind of thing I want to sit down at a table and we all sit there in silence looking at each other's, you know, big bags of gold and stuff. That's not that fun. And there's a million other games that we're probably going to want to play, ones that involve, you know, killing each other and attacking territories and creating alliances and then breaking them and all those horrible things. So I'd say for that part, it's probably a no for me.
0: Well, I'm a little bit disappointed to hear that just because I do have the Norwegian's expansion. I haven't played it yet. And I was kind of hopeful that you guys would want to play it in Sedona. And that's the only reason that I'm kind of motivated to bring it and see if people are feeling it when we're out there, because I'd like to get that played and see. I've heard great things about it. You know, that's one of these expansions that people say, if you don't, you know, if you're going to play this game, you got to play with the Norwegian's expansion. So would it would increase the excitement for me, the fun of the game for me? I don't know if it would. Um, so if we don't get it played, then I'll probably try it solo one time just to know that I've played it, know what it's like. But honestly, if the Norwegians expansion hadn't come on sale this summer, I was going to move this out of my collection because I don't get super excited to play it. It's it, There's so many other even dry Euro games that I have more fun with. If I'm going to pick a Uwe Rosenberg game, I'd rather play Agricola, you know, 10 times out of 10 over A Feast for Odin. A Feast for a, a really uh, ambitious game. It's got a lot of really interesting things going on, interconnected things. It's a big sandbox of a game. I think it's going to hit really hard for some people, but for some reason, this game has never hit really hard for me. So I will probably not ever ask to play it again, aside from just to try to get this expansion played one time. Um, You know, strong game, uh, but, but just not for me.
2: I'd be happy to try... If you want to play it to get the expansion in there, I'd be happy to try that. I actually had that. I borrowed the game from a friend that had the Norwegian's expansion in it, but I never ended up getting that played. So it looked like there was some fun new tiles and stuff like that. So I would do it. I, I'm I'm not against the idea. It probably wouldn't be my first choice, but I, I'm, I'm up for it if you want to do it.
0: Yeah, and I appreciate that. And, and like I said, maybe I'll bring it and we'll see if it hits, but I can see Adam rolling his eyes right now. And,
1: uh, you a know... Lot. I Unless I, I don't want to pity play the <laughs> Norwegians expansion just because, I don't know, I feel like it's going to take a spot of, there's so many games yeah. that we haven't played yet that we always yeah. talk about what it play No, exactly, right? If it ends up working out, we'll let's play it. But I don't know, slim pickings to get down to this one.
2: Pity play.
1: Well, listen back at the beginning of May after we have our next BGHT con and you'll find out if we
0: ever got it played again. All right, well, that'll wrap up A Feast for Odin. Let's jump into a Feast for Odin themed cocktail and a couple of games that have been on our table right after this.
2: Welcome back, Chris. What are we drinking in Scandinavia? Alright, well tonight I am keeping it simple. There's no recipe, there's no cocktail, just an off-the-shelf drink that will have you feeling right at home at the Vikings dinner table. And in fact, A Feast for Odin is one of those great opportunities to pull a drink directly from the game itself. There's no need for interpretation or imagination or any of that stuff. So with that intro, can you guys guess what drink I'm thinking of? Mead. Mead? Yes. (laughs) You guys are excellent. I love it. So for those not familiar, mead is an alcoholic beverage that's made from honey. I've often heard it called honey wine. And like wine, it comes in all shapes, sizes, flavors, from the syrupy sweet to the seriously dry. And not only was mead a mainstay for the Vikings, but unlike the ale that was also really common on the Viking table, mead was also considered the drink of the gods. So therefore, it wasn't just fun and tasty to drink, but it also carried religious significance. So how awesome is it when you get to mix your religion in your drinking, right? So mead has been available to us modern drinkers for a long time, but when I first started encountering it in the late 1990s, the options were really pretty limited. Most of it was crazy sweet syrupy stuff with packaging that included a lot of Vikings and medieval imagery. And honestly, It seemed like it was mostly being marketed to geeks exactly like us that were doing something exactly like this. (laughs) So aside from feeling completely owned, Mead of that period, at least what I was seeing was really not all that inspiring. But boy, has that changed. Like craft beer and cider and pretty much every type of alcohol imaginable, Mead has gone through, dare I say, a renaissance in recent years. And small batch craft meaderies have popped up all over the country. And there's even a fair number of decent, relatively mass-produced meads that you can get your hands on if you have a really good local grocery store, usually the high-end kind of place. And unlike the old school mead, the new stuff is really complex. It's varied and it's interesting as anything in the craft beer world. So I have to give a special shout out here to listener Seth Gonzalez, who I think actually came up. This is your second mention in the show tonight, Seth, so good for you. Uh, He's a bit of a mead proselytizer and introduced me to the amazingly diverse world of mead that's opened up these days. I knew a little bit about it, but this guy knows a lot about it. Mead aged in bourbon barrels, mead with fruit adjuncts, dry mead, sweet mead. There's even a mead out there that he told me about once called banana pancakes, for God's sake so anyhow there's no doubt that you'll have more options than any of our viking friends ever had when you look for a good mead and whatever you pick you're making odin proud skull
0: the only time that i ever had mead was uh i was in long beach which is where adam still lives but they used to have an annual pirate festival where down by the long beach pier they would let people set up tents that were all decked out like like you know, pirate tents with like crates in them and all the people would be dressed up like pirates. So this is like a little like Renaissance fair type of thing that would rotate around the country. And the only thing they served on the pair as a drink was mead. You couldn't get beer or anything like that. So you could get mead and I tried it and it it felt like a light beer. But again, this might've been a cheap, you know, not, not a great mead. I don't know. Still better than water. So I think, uh, i try some more.
2: Well, first of all, I remember the Pirate Festival. In fact, I remember one time sitting down on Second Street, which is the little place where all the restaurants are. People sit out on the patios and and eat their dinner. And it was the same weekend as Pirate Weekend that they were also having a Pokemon carnival, festival, whatever you call it, conference (laughs) at the Civic Center. And so walking down the street at the same time, I saw pirates and like what's that guy? Pikachu. Pikachu, or something. Pika, yeah. Pikachu walking down the street <laughs> together. So I do remember that. But the reality is if you got it and it tasted like a light beer to you, they probably just gave you a light beer. <laughs> it shouldn't have tasted like me. Well, no, it tasted. It didn't beer.
0: taste like light beer, but it tasted like what light beer is to me, which is like basically slightly flavored water. That's that's kind of what it reminded me of. It did, but it did taste different. Oh, than, I got you. Adam, have you ever been to the Pirate Festival in Long Beach? I have not. I've been missing out. i keep an eye out for that one yeah you'll have to you got to go at least walk the pier i used to run down there so i watched when they were setting up but people really like they get these old like run down you know tents and and you know everyone's decked out and they got the big metal mugs and they're sitting around in their pirate boots and their pirate hat and their patches and it's kind of a spectacle. It's pretty cool.
2: Sounds pretty. Sounds like I need to go check it out, yeah. <laughs> it's something, all right. All
0: right, well, let's get into some games we've been playing this week.
1: I brought Capital Lux 2 back to the table, far away from the glare of Chris and maybe the glare of Tim. I think Tim enjoyed this one, but I know Chris doesn't like doing small, basic algebra for whatever reason in his games, so he avoids this one as much as possible. But for people that are okay with that. This game is fantastic. Again, in Capital Lux 2, you have your own little area, your own little district or city, and there's the capital, right? So it's a little bit of pusher luck. You want to make sure the sum of the cards in your district, there's four suits, the sum of the suit in your district stays below the sum of the capital. So that you're doing these different things. If you're playing a card in the capital, that gives you this little power. Maybe it's slide a card from the capital to your area. Maybe it's grab one of these coins or take one of these other little chits that'll have some special effect and ways to mitigate the sums or do something tricky with your cards at the end of the round. So you're taking turns. There's a little draft at the beginning of each round. You're taking turns playing the six cards in your handout. And um, at the end, you score each of the four suits. And if you won that four suits, you get the high card from the capital. That card comes out. So... The sum of the capital is now reduced. You're going to have to mitigate that in the next round, and that card goes into your personal score pile. You know, four cards each round getting divvied up for points at the end of three rounds. Add those up, and that's the winner. It's This game is simple rule set, fun, engaging card play. You have to keep an eye on the other person. It's not like Feast for Odin where you can't just sit there and ignore other people playing this game. You're constantly watching out. Oh, what did you just do? What? Why would you do that? Oh, you son of a gun? And then there's this little agent card where you grab this little number that'll manipulate the sum of the tile, but only you know if it's going to add to the sum of the tile or it could even subtract from the sum of the, the capital suit there. So just clever little things you can do like that. If you like quick card play with some sneaky plays that can make you feel clever, this game is absolutely fantastic. That's Capital Lux 2. We played with the, just the, I think we played with the B set. So the Capital Powers, there's an A through E set now. There's five different sets of Capital Powers you can play with. A lot of variability here, a lot of different ways to play this game. I think this one is a gem, and I'm very glad I got to play it again. And Sarah absolutely loves this one too, so we'll be playing this one a ton. It makes me
2: happy that you enjoy it.
0: Yeah. So I was just going to ask if Sarah liked it. That's awesome. I'm, I hope you guys get back to it. So if you are interested in hearing an actual description of the game that doesn't sound like my description of Fox in the Forest, <laughs> we covered this in detail in episode 15 way back in November of 2020. So when I go back and listen to one of our early episodes, we did a whole episode dedicated to Capital X Two, And I remember it being a fun game that was a little dry. I would happy, happily go back to it though. Um, it definitely had some cool interesting things going on.
1: I didn't call it a designer. It's Edith Svinson and Christian Emerson Ospie, And the art here is by Quan Chi Moria, yeah, one of my favorites. Yeah. And one of the things I remember is we, we played this originally,
0: I think, on Tabletop Simulator. And then Adam recently posted a picture of this on his table. And it is one of the prettiest games that I've seen, especially for a small card game. So, so artwork definitely deserves a call out.
2: And if you want to hear another description of it, Tim seems to have forgotten this, but, and this is almost a direct quote, not exactly, I'm sure, but Tim called this basic math, the board game. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, maybe I need to go back and listen to episode 15.
2: All right. Well, what's been on my
0: table this week is I got to play another Steffenfeld Feld game. And I feel like our on the table segment is my Steffen Feld uh, masterpiece theater recently, because that, that seems to be what I talk about the most. But I got to play In the Year of the Dragon. This is one of Steffen Feld games from way back in 2007. The artists were Harold Liske and Michael Menzel. And uh, this is one of the least attractive productions I've seen on a game. And that's saying a lot for a Steffen Feld game. And let me tell you about the description of this. This says... Players take on the role of Chinese rulers around the year 1000. The game plays out in 12 rounds, with each round representing one month in a year that seems to go from bad to worse. Disease, drought, and attacks from the Mongols may claim lives, but make sure you have enough money to offer a tribute to the emperor. Does that sound fun to you guys? No.
1: (laughs) This is (laughs) immediately to my
0: avoid list. Well, let me tell you (laughs) that you would be wrong, because this game is a blast. It's super fun, and I did not expect it. I thought it was going to be punishing, And it is so streamlined and so fun and it is punishing, but it's manageable and it's all about risk management. It's played over 12 rounds and every round has an event and all the events are laid out on the board at the beginning of the game. So you know what's coming over the rest of the game. But the first two years are peace. There's nothing that's going to happen. So you have a little time to plan. Now, the way the game works is it's played in a couple phases, but they're very simple. First, it's a simple action selection mechanism the there are uh, seven tiles that can be t- taken, basically seven actions that can be taken And each of these actions basically represent one of the things you're going to do to mitigate one of the disasters. So, for example, one of the actions will let you get food and then one of the disasters is drought. So or uh, yeah, I think it's uh, dr- drought or famine or something like that. And if there's famine, then you need to have a certain amount of food to pay the people that you've got in your palaces. And if if you don't, they die. So anyway, there's these seven actions and they're going to be split by the number of players. So we played a three player game. So that means you had a set of tiles that were three tiles, one set that was two and one set that was two. And each player is going to take in turn order, their little dragon token and put it on one of those sets. So if I if I'm the first player and I put it on the three set, I get to take one of those actions. The next player can take one of the other sets of actions for free. And they're going to get one of the actions out of the set. But if they want to take one of the actions that are in my set, they have to also play three more coins. Everyone can't decide, hey, I'm going to collect food this time because the famine uh, disaster is coming up. If they do, they better have prepped the turn before to make sure they have enough coins to do that. And that's kind of what this whole game is. After you take these actions, though, then you get to recruit a, a person, a, a worker that's going to go into one of your palaces. And these workers, are you, you just get them. They're free. And based on their uh, what they do, they're going to basically supplement the actions that you took in the previous round. So I mentioned that that one action lets you take a food, but if you have this extra worker, the rice, uh, I think it's like rice farmer, then you're going to get three food when you take that action. So each of the workers you collect and build into your palace is going to help supplement these actions and make them stronger. But you also have to build your palace to support more workers because at the start of the game, you can only hold four workers in there. So one of the actions you would have to take would be to add more palace levels. But that means you're giving up getting some of the resources you need to prevent one of the disasters. And there's also, you know, issues where like you have the more palaces you have, the more people you have to feed the more um, palaces. If you leave a palace empty at the end of the round, you there's decay on it. So you lose one of the levels of the palace. So everything in this game is about planning, prepping for disaster, trying to set yourself up. And it's so much fun. It's like this little engine builder that is just constantly like, okay, I got to think three rounds ahead. But the rounds are quick. They're breezy. They're simple actions. And they're fun, tough choices. A couple of the actions, aside from just being disasters that are the kind of the events, instead of just being disasters that would wipe stuff out from you, then those are places where you can actually get points. And the end game goal here, of course, is getting points, but you can only go for points when you can actually afford to not die. So like there's a fireworks festival. And if you can collect fireworks, the person who has the most fireworks at that event is gonna get six points. Second place is gonna get three points. Everyone else gets none. And that's a huge swing in this game, six points. So you've got to be planning for that. And there's a couple other actions you can take that just give you points, but can you afford to give up getting one of the things that's going to mitigate a disaster? This game was a blast. Chris, a few episodes back, you asked me what Steffen Feld game should you play since you've only played the Castle Burgundy. And I mentioned Notre Dame, and it's a great game. This, I don't know. I think you guys might like it, except for Adam's aversion to having people die on him. But this was a really fun game. And it's so it's so breezy. It's so streamlined. I don't know. It's It's... I I can't recommend this game enough, as ugly as it is.
1: I would love to give this one a try, but having said that, I am super pessimistic on this one. It sounds like every other Euro game, there's going to be some action that happens. you got to mitigate some stuff. Or are you going to be able to get enough points in the meantime while trying to survive this other thing? Let's trade some stuff for some stuff for some stuff and see how it goes. Isn't this like Spirit Island, except you're going for points? Or...
0: except competitive and you can you can take the actions that you know the other people need to stop them from getting them and make them lose people so very interactive very impactful on what other people do i don't know what to i don't know what to say it, it surprised me i had fun
1: playing it how does it compare to the le boy de Joux game um outlive outlive how does it compare to Outlive? yeah
0: it doesn't feel as thematic as outlive at all this feels a, a tad bit more abstract and and you know, I don't know. There's something about losing a cardboard shit that isn't as painful as losing a, a, a person that you, you know, that's surviving in your radioactive in, in uh, your, uh, hardened shelter. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. It doesn't it doesn't it doesn't feel as painful to me, <laughs> but I did pretty well in it as well. And so like I didn't have as much loss. I was talking to somebody else who, after I played it and telling him how much fun I had, and he's like, I'm, I'm surprised you liked it that much because I've literally seen people end that game with no people in their palace. <laughs> like they just, they couldn't, like they just could not. Because the, the thing about it is, is that your engine building is the people you collect. And if you don't do well, then you lose people. And so I think there's a good <sighs> opportunity that if things are going poorly, they could go really poorly. In our game, everybody did moderately well. And I did a little bit better than the other players, but nobody was hurt that bad. We all had people left. We all had stuff that was going on and and strategies to work towards. So maybe it depends on exactly how that gameplay goes. I just, I found it a ton of fun. I thought it was a great game.
2: I can almost see the thought bubble over Adam's head. Outlive with no theme. Man, I want a piece of that.
1: (laughs) It sounds so stressful already. I'm
2: already like reluctant. Well, it's a lot less fiddly than Outlive. I'll
0: tell you that, but it is a little bit less dramatic um yeah it, it, it didn't feel the same both wonderful games i think you probably enjoyed this one a little bit more adam to be honest it's got a little bit of take that a little bit of a little bit of push your luck a little bit of like well if i don't plan for this next round as long as somebody else doesn't take that action i'm good and you hope they don't but if they're watching they're paying attention they know you need okay. it you might be in trouble so that sounds pretty good
2: yeah i think i think you probably enjoy it a little bit more yeah yeah, I have to admit, there's nothing in that description that you just gave that makes me want to play this game other than saying that it was really good because that's the thing. When you describe Euro games, <laughs> yeah. they always sound the same. They sound like the same game over and over and over again. And some end up being really clever and really fun and some end up being really unclever and really unfun. So I I believe you that this one has the capacity to be a lot of fun. I would I would love to try it to see if it transcends its description.
0: Well, I will tell you, there are not a lot of games that I, on my first play throughout the game, I say many times, wow, this game is really good. This game is really cool. Mm. And this is one of those. And Steffenfeld's done that to me a couple of times, but I don't remember feeling this way for a long time on a game. And so at least for me on a first play, I'm really excited to go back to it. And I think it'll become a staple in my play group and something that I'm going to be happy to go back to anytime. We'll see if it holds up. I do think there's a little potential in it that it could get state a little stale if you played it. You know, a lot frequently, but who does that in today's modern board game hobby anyway? You, you know, you're going to get this out once a year, and I think it's going to be really exciting to explore one or two times a year.
2: Cool.
0: Fair enough. All right, cool. Well, before we wrap up today, I just want to call uh, call out a couple of listeners, give them a little shout out for being super nice and leaving us a positive re- review on Apple Podcasts. We got two reviews this week. The first review today was from Epigon Seventeen and their title was Great Podcast with Great Hosts, Five Stars. This is a really fun board game podcast. The hosts are enthusiastic and great to listen to. I like hearing their opinions on lots of games, especially games that have been around a while. I love hearing first-time opinions on games that aren't the new hotness. That having been said, they're all very wrong about Endless Winter. (laughs) So, (laughs) I don't know. We were pretty positive on Endless Winter. So, I'm assuming Epigon either really didn't like Endless Winter or liked it so much
1: that our review sounded negative to that. Wow. Um, Well, (laughs) I would like to point out that I was not on that episode. (laughs) And Adam's wondering why I didn't say Adam's the best (laughs) host. Adam's
0: redeemed himself. All right. And the next review that we got this week was all caps, my favorite pod right now. And this was by Isaac.ax on Apple Podcasts. Five stars. I just recently got into board games and you guys have been amazing. Some podcasts can be intimidating to listen to, but you guys make it fun and awesome. They talk about games I'm interested in and they create entertaining content. If I could give it 10 stars, I would. Wow, Isaac, that was such a nice thing to say. Appreciate both of you very much. Now, I need to call out just one more thing here. This is something I've never done before, but you, know, you can leave reviews on Apple Podcasts for the podcast itself. But you can also leave reviews on a podcast episode on Spotify, apparently. This is something I've been seeing pop up. I think this is a newer feature where once in a while someone will say, hey, that was a great episode. Thanks for mentioning this, et cetera. And I had to call it this one episode because Joe Staskwix said this is on the Endless Winter episode. And he left this review on this episode. He said, great episode about some games I love. Thanks again. Also, Chris is the best. Hey. So, <laughs> so just the shout out. <laughs> uh, so, thanks, Joe, for that. And uh, maybe I'll, I'll try to read these out when I see them up before we do before we do our reviews. If uh,
2: if they're a uh, general comment. So, I want to give one more shout out here because we don't have any credits in our show. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about our audio for the last couple of episodes, because with Adam not around, I've been doing the editing and the music that we have on this show is so much fun. I I find myself humming our little theme song as I walk around the house. Every time it comes on, my son is like, oh, that's so good. I love that. And I'm not sure if we've ever mentioned it, but the music in our show was written and recorded by Adam. And I think he just deserves a a little pat on the back for that one, because at least to me now, it's like that that sound comes on and I just immediately think of it. I think of our show and I just so enjoy what that brings to the uh, to the episodes. Thanks, Chris. I'm uh, I just got my
1: computer set up all again with the audio going and I'm hoping to write some new little ditties, incorporate that into the show upcoming. So we'll see if it uh, passes muster. We'll get a couple new little little jingles on the show.
0: Yeah, and we're about two and a half years in and I still remember the day that uh, Adam and I were kind of talking about producing the first episode and I said, hey, once you go out to one of these, uh, you know, music, like, you can purchase this, this music site and find something that's going to be a good clip to edit in here. And I didn't get a response from him for a few minutes. And I was like, oh, wait, Adam's a musician. I was like, Adam, did you want to? Do you want to put together some music for the show? And he's like, yeah, that's what I was thinking. And the, first, the our opening music is still the music that Adam uh, composed for that very first episode and has been with us ever since. So uh, two and a half years in, maybe it's time to switch it up, Adam. Maybe you got to you know, put something new out here.
1: I'll try to get the creative
0: juices flowing a little, see what pops out. All right. Again, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. And thanks for leaving us positive reviews. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And even more importantly than that, with I think within the next couple of weeks, the Golden Geek Awards are going to be coming up on Board Game Geek. And pay attention to that. If you do see it come up, there is a uh, category for Best Podcast. And we would love your nomination this year. So go out and vote for us on Board Game Geek for Best Podcast. And uh, until next week, take
2: care, everybody. Good night, all. Bye-bye. I, did I talk about Capital Lux too? I think Recently? we did a whole episode on it. No we, but, no. no we did, but did. <laughs> yeah. We did a whole episode. I don't, I don't think you've mentioned. It. I don't
0: remember you mentioning it again, so feel free to mention it again.